Our guest today is Brendan Ballou. Brendan has a phenomenal new book out called Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. Now, as a free market capitalist, I found this book absolutely riveting and shocking. This is a real look at something that no one really understands yet, how deeply it's changing our economy, changing our country, and frankly, hurting our country. Brendan is a former federal prosecutor. He was special counsel in the private equity practice at the Justice Department, so he knows of what he speaks. He also was in uh, private practice, worked in the National Security Division of the Justice Department, and he's advised the White House on counterterrorism and, and a variety of other consequential matters. He is a graduate of Columbia and Stanford Law. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Brendan, thank you so much for joining me today on the Enemies List podcast. I am delighted to have you with us. Folks, Brendan's got a new book out, folks, called Plunder, Private Equities Plan to Pillage America. And as a free market capitalism kind of guy, I love the fact that he wrote this book because private equity has been one of these things that has been sort of slowly metastasizing out of capitalism and into something really much darker and stranger and more dangerous, I think. And so I'm really grateful that he's with us today. So Brendan, what and why did you write this book? What What is private equity? Explain to folks who are listening what it is and what it does today and what are the dangers and what inspired you to write this book? Well, Rick, thank you so much for the time and um, for the opportunity to talk with you. And uh, I should say at the offset, at the outset, um, the, you know, my views here don't necessarily reflect those of my current employer, the Department of Justice. Sure. Uh, sure. So, with all that said, um, you ask a you ask a great first question, which is, what is private equity? Um, and I confess, it's not uh, something that I really knew the answer to until probably I was halfway through this book project. So, I think okay. people are, um, it's totally fine to not know what it means. But the the short idea is this. Private equity firms use a little bit of their own money, um, some investors' money, and a whole lot of borrowed money uh, to buy up companies. They then hold the companies for a few years and try to flip them for a profit, mm -hmm. um, which is very simple. The challenge that we've got is that there are three basic problems with the private equity business model. They tend to hold companies just for a few years. They tend to load up the companies they buy with a lot of debt and extract a lot of fees. And they tend to be, and this is the part that interests me because I'm a lawyer, they tend to insulate themselves legally and financially from the consequences of the actions of their portfolio companies. And right. those three things lead to, um, you know, you said that you're a free market capitalist. And and I, I would say writing this book made me sort of more enthused about sort of free market capitalism. Right. Private equity is... is it's a little bit like a like a cheat code on on free uh, on on capitalism, or or a little bit of a deviation from it. I think whether you're a, a member of the DSA or a member of you know the com you know Chamber of Commerce, um, the basic flaws of the private equity business model should be concerning to you. Yeah, it strikes me that you know that one of the things I've I've studied a lot in in you know, places that fall apart or fall into sort of authoritarian mo models is they end up with this 
separate financial tranche of people who are untouchable like and who who are always going to make money no matter what they do. Russia is experiencing or had experienced this for a very long time in the post-Cold War era. And and this sort of kleptocracy, crony capitalism thing that, that builds up. I mean, I guess part of this is that these companies have, they, they've been able to enter all these marketplaces almost invisibly, right? I mean, no, nobody knows that private equity firms own I don't even know. Tell me a little bit more. Give us some examples of like, first of all, how much of the economy do you think private equity basically controls right now? And and give us some examples of of how it's driving up costs and prices and and risks for Americans because sure. of that. Yeah, no, it's a great question because I, I think most people just aren't aware of the scale. So um, or even what the big private equity firms are. So if you look at um, KKR, Carlisle, and Blackstone, mm-hmm. which are, you know, by various measures, the three largest right. private equity firms. Um, if you consider them with their portfolio companies, they are the third, fourth, and fifth largest employers in America behind only Walmart and Amazon. Um, so wow. it's just extraordinary. Um, in 2021, PE firms bought uh, $1.2 trillion worth of companies. And just for comparison, you know, those numbers kind of become a little, almost sort of imaginary mm-hmm, for most mm-hmm. of us. Um, the entire US GDP is about $25 trillion. Now that's not an apples to apples sure, comparison, sure. but it gives you a sense of the scale here. Um, so private equity surrounds you. If you um, uh, go to the vet, if you go to an OBGYN, if you buy shoes or contact lenses, if you pump gas, if you uh, pay your water bill, um, pay bond if you go to jail or um, uh, pay for an ambulance, there's a good chance that that money is um, ultimately going to a private equity firm that owns the company. Uh, I always say, you know, with with this book, I say private equity is literally right in front of you. The, the font that we use for the book uh, is owned and licensed by a private equity portfolio <laughs> company. Amazing. So it's amazing. It's, it's all. Yeah, it's all around you. In terms of the problems, um, you know, we can we can jump into sort of any of the a, any number of examples. I think some of the ones that might um, sort of frustrate people the most is is their activity in um, in healthcare. So, yes. for instance, they have been a, a handful of private equity firms have been extremely active in buying up physician staffing companies um, and particularly in emergency rooms. Um, and once they do, out-of-network expenses uh, in those emergency rooms have typically skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to overstate the case here, but a big chunk of why people experience surprise medical bills has been sort of the growth of private equity in this industry. That sort of cost driver is an invisible tax on Americans, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a way – and I, I – you know, I'm a lawyer, so I always want to be a little careful here. I don't want to. I don't want to say that all private equity firms, you know, are only bad and only cause sure, problems. Sure. There, there have been any number of investments that work out well, but in general, it's you know, uh, in the aggregate, I would say it's a movement of money from productive parts of the con- company country. You know, whether you're talking about emergency rooms or veterinary clinics or um, you know retail stores, um, to the financial part of the con- the economy. Okay, so this veterinary thing, as a guy with Two dogs. I formerly have had five horses over the last few years. I have paid my share of veterinary bills. How is private equity in? How where is private equity's score in the in the veterinary market? I'm fascinated. Uh, unfortunately, it's everywhere. Um, so a handful of private equity portfolio companies are 
um, buying up veterinary clinics all across the country, um, rolling them up into larger chains, and then you know nominally having um, you know having sort of um, uh, efficiencies to scale, but it's also an opportunity to. Uh, raise prices for consumers, potentially lower pay for workers, and potentially, mm-hmm. as alleged by various people, um, lower quality care. Actually, this is personal for me. My girlfriend is a veterinarian, so I talked okay. to her, and she's talking about how all of the clinics in our area are getting bought up by private equity firms, and it means that if you're a veterinarian, you don't really have a place to go. You know, if you go for right, one, you know, if right. you're in one one practice, the practice next door might own be, might ultimately be owned by the same company. The the big risk that I hear from her veterinary friends is we're terrified of veterinary medicine becoming like human medicine. And I think that would should scare everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so one of the things I was reading recently is about private equity firms buying up the US housing market, like yeah. snatching up homes and, and more and more likely that they're, they're sort of trying to drive America into being a rentier society rather than, a, than an ownership society. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was, some of that? Because I find that I think that's like one of those fundamentals of the American dream that if you break that, you really kind of lose something in this in this country. Yeah. And I mean, you earlier you described yourself as a free market capitalist. I think it goes to that the core of that idea. Um, if I can tell you a really quick story about this. So um, in uh, the depths of the Great Recession, um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are these quasi government mm-hmm. agencies, um, had partial ownership interests. And in, I think it was something like half of all mortgages in America. Right. And so more than anybody else in the country, they actually had the ability to keep people in their homes. And probably the best policy thing for them to do would be to temporarily lower the principal on people's mortgages. So what it would do mm-hmm. is it would mean that people could keep paying their mortgages. They wouldn't be kicked out. Um, it would sort of prevent the ripple on effects of whole neighborhoods when one home gets foreclosed, sure, it lowers the value sure. in, every, in everyone's. Um, and unfortunately, the leader of the, the agency that was overseeing them adamantly refused to do that, um, refused to implement principal reduction. But what they did do is when homes started to be foreclosed, they started selling them, not an in individual, not home by home, but in large tracts that only large investors and in particular private equity firms could buy. And what that meant is a handful of private equity firms took hundreds, thousands of homes that used to be owned, you know, occupied by individual owners, bought them up after they had been foreclosed and flipped them into single family rentals. And so it's really interesting, you know, this private equity business model has um, really helped start a larger trend of decreased home ownership in America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, home ownership is down significantly from where it was 20 sure. years ago. Uh, one statistic that I uh, I saw was that for African American families, home ownership is back down to the levels that it was in the civil rights movement. Jesus. Um, so it's it's a real sea change in how people um, build wealth or don't in America. And private equity wasn't the whole story, but it was a big part. Mm, fascinating. So you described a little bit about sort of, and I want to go through like the life cycle of a of a of a bad private equity deal. So you're a firm out in the Midwest and you're making, I don't know, wire harnesses for auto for, for the auto industry. One day you get a knock on the door, a private equity company comes in and says, hi, we're from KKR, Carlisle, wherever. Tell me how that works. What happens to that company in, in, in the, a lot of the scenarios that you've discovered? Sure. And I can, I can use a, a real example if sure, you'd like. Right. Perfect. Um, perfect. Uh, one of the, one of the Midwest regional retailers that I went to all the time when I was a kid is a place called Shopco, which was sort of like one step up up, above Walmart, but one step below target, you know, (laughs) um, got it, got it. Uh, 
It was a great store. Um, I was bought in, I believe, 2007 by a private equity firm, uh, Sun Capital. And um, what they did was one of their first moves was to execute what's called a sale leaseback. Shopco was a responsible company um, and it owned a lot of their stores, the actual physical property. Mm -hmm. Sun Capital, under Sun Capital's ownership, they sold their property and stayed in the stores, but now they had to lease those same stores back. So it gives a quick pop of cash to the company Mm -hmm. and importantly to the private equity firm. But now they've got this unending obligation to pay the lease. So it's it sort of decreased the wealth of the overall company. Another thing that shop that Sun Capital did was execute what's called a dividend recapitalization. So essentially what they did is they required Shopgo to um, uh, borrow money in order to pay dividends uh, to the share to, to the owners, including Sun Capital. So it's a little bit like getting to use somebody else's credit card. <laughs> then when the company faces hard times, as it inevitably does, you know, it's now loaded with a lot of debt. Um, it has a lot of, you know, it, it no longer has the assets that it could rely on to borrow, you know, to borrow money. It's ultimately pushed into bankruptcy and there were enormous layoffs. Ultimately, um, I believe most, if not all of the entire business, um, was forced to shut down. So it's a series of tactics that, um, can work very well in the short term and can work extremely well for the private equity firm, right. um, but doesn't work so well in the long term and doesn't work so well for, for customers or employees. So that idea that you know the, the, the white knights are coming in to capitalize your, your struggling business and help you grow in these cases is very frequently, I mean, how is it that people at this point in our country, I mean, is it just that they come in and tell the board, hey, we're going to buy the, we're going to, we're going to buy you guys out and you're going to all make your, you're going to all make a, make a nice, a nice tranche of cash or. I, I mean, think for. Yeah, it's a great question. Why why does this happen so often? Um, you know, for the people that are running the company that gets bought out, um, it can be enormously profitable. Um, you know, if they are equity holders, they can they can get very nice payouts. Um, the challenges that you have are are for the customers and employees, whether it's increased prices, reduced care, or you know, large layoffs. One of the things that's really interesting is there's a study that said that. I believe it was over a decade. Private equity and hedge funds were responsible for about six hundred thousand um, job losses in the retail sector mm-hmm. uh, over a time when the industry was actually gaining in right, jobs, right. which was really interesting. So it's not to say, you know, to to go back to sort of your theme about you know capitalism that works here. It's not to say that there's not a role for capital to play. Sure. As long as companies need to grow and you know yeah, you build factories and hire new people, you need. You need money and you need investment. The challenge is when that investment comes with such a short-term perspective right, um, that right. you're not thinking really about investment, you're thinking about extraction. And that, that to me is, that to me, it goes back to that sort of like almost kleptocratic approach to this thing. It, it You've got to wonder, uh, you know, obviously these folks have decided they're going to have their own economic niche that is going to be dedicated to this. They've made their, whatever their moral comfort level is with it. It, it, it exists enough to, make, to keep them in the business. But it couldn't stay in the business without what I think is a fairly bipartisan protection racket down in Washington for this industry and a fairly aggressive, uh, and I know people on both sides of the aisle who are very, very big fans of private equity. They believe it is the purest form of capitalism. Uh, we disagree, but okay. They're senators and I'm not. Um, so tell us a little bit about how, I mean, this is essentially a, an industry that doesn't really work under a lot of regulatory structure. Am I correct in that? I mean, it seems like it seems like, and, and if and if anyone thinks there should be regulatory structure, um, an army of lobbyists descends on them like the Mongol horde. <laughs> 
You know, when you talk about um, private equity's success in government, um, mm-hmm. I think it might be unrivaled. Um, I think private equity and investment firms, according to Open Secrets, have donated about $900 million to federal candidates over the past 20 or 30 years. So we're talking, right. we're talking real numbers here. Yeah. Um, and I think even perhaps more important than, than, the, than the contributions is the people. Um, you look at who private equity firms employ. It includes secretaries of state, defense, treasury, mm-hmm. um, generals, a CIA director, a vice president, two speakers of the House, um, <laughs> any number of former uh, former senators and Congress people, and perhaps even more than sort of the bright light names is the people below the fold. When whether you're talking about you know chiefs of staff mm-hmm. and legislative directors. Um, if you are, you know, if you're in government and are going to be approached by a private equity firm, there's a there's a good chance that you're going to be approached by a friendly face, and that's sure. that's not an accident. And so, private equity has been um, enormously successful in um, in advocating for itself. I'd also say part of it is that they've made their issues seem very boring. Um, <laughs> in that, you know, uh, right. Uh, you, you just say the phrase "carried interest loophole" and you sort of, you, you sort of, your eyes glaze over a little bit. Um, but it's incredibly important. Although, if you say it and, three times, Kirsten Cinema will appear in the room. <laughs> uh, you know, you you just, um, you know, they have made these things seem very anodyne. Whether it's surprise medical billing or carried interest or any of the host of issues that they've had success with um, outside of Congress among um, uh, agencies. Uh, and I think that has made it hard for the media to cover it. And I think mm-hmm. it's made it hard for people to follow it. Well, you have some prescriptions in the book for how we should sort of try to look at this and, and bring it back into the frame of, of capital in the markets rather than capital being extracted from the entire American economy into a sort of weird dead end of people who own a lot of private jets and very fancy houses. And I have nothing against private jets or fancy houses. I have one, but not the other. <laughs> and no, folks, it's not the jet. Tell us a little bit about what some of the things you you, you sort of have thought through in this book. Um, and, it, and it's gotten so many very strong reviews about the approach to it that I, I, I'm hoping you can give people a little bit of a sort of ray of hope that there's a path forward here that isn't this crony capitalism. Yep. So at a high level, we really just need to do three things. Um, one is we need to make private equity firms think for the long term. The second is we need to reduce the incentives for them to buy up companies with a lot of debt and extract a lot of fees. Mm-hmm. And third, we need to hold them financially and legally responsible for the consequences of their actions. Um, those are things that we can do through Congress, but you know, Congress sometimes works on issues, sometimes doesn't. Um, there's a lot of things that we that can be done, not just in, in agencies, whether we're talking about Treasury, the SEC, Health and Human Services but also states and localities. There's a lot of local legislation that can be done on these issues for companies that are headquartered or have their businesses there. Mm-hmm. There's even things for state AGs, private litigants, and even activists that can that can sort of move the, the ball forward on these issues. But I think to your, your line about sort of a ray of sunshine or some optimism here, I think that that's so important because I think... Um, the advocates for the private equity business model would like everybody to believe that this is essentially unchangeable. And the fact is, we really do have precedent for making changes, for fixing broken business models sure. in America. Absolutely. I, I think a lot about the end of the Gilded Age, you know, which was mm-hmm. a time of, you know, the great trust that the in a lot of ways are... The trust, yeah. Exactly. I, 
legally are very similar to how private equity firms are structured. We've essentially just recreated the, uh, them from you know 100 years before. Right. The trusts were ultimately constrained by the populist and progressive movements, by great legislation, mm-hmm. um, bipartisan legislation that created the FTC and the new antitrust laws, the Federal Reserve, the progressive income tax, all these sorts of things. So it's not to say that, you know, success is guaranteed here, but we have done this before. So there's at least the possibility that we can do it again. I think that's really an interesting uh, analogy to it because there really was a sense uh, about 120 years ago now, basically, that the classic things in, in the American economy at that time were immutable and that they were that they could never fail, they could never be reined in, they could never be constrained in any way. And I think there is a lot of that sense right now that that these are the masters of the universe. These are the 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 uncaught wolves of Wall Street. It, let me ask you one other question about this too as a way that governments can take action. How much state investment money from the various states is wrapped up in the private equity space? that does these things that are ultimately like burning back on the states and harming. I mean, the, the, yes, they may, it may make their pension funds money, but it's also, you know, the pension funds are going to have to, to to do more cleanup on aisle three because of all the other damage. It's a great question. Um, so just to, to explain to folks, um, private equity firms get a lot of their money to invest from pension funds, you know, the teachers fund, the police, mm-hmm. you know, and fire Calpers fund, things like that. And, yeah. Exactly. Um, And one of the really interesting things is those funds, you know, yes, it may be destructive for them for the long term, you know, whether they're if you if you support unions, they're, you know, union funds that are ultimately supporting firms that might do union busting. If you support the environment, they might be, you know, investing in fossil fuel, whatever it happens to be. But they're also susceptible to to um, influence and sort of popular control. One of the real success stories here has been around private equity investments in prison phone services. So (laughs) uh, PE firms started buying um, uh, prison phone systems. And then, um, you know, there were exorbitant rates, you know, in some places it could cost $25 for a 15 minute call. Um, Really extraordinary stuff. Of people who Um, cannot afford any of that sort of thing. Yeah, um, it's it's uh, was a business model that really targeted sort of the um, uh, the the least advantaged of among us. Um, a woman named Bianca Tylek and her organization Worth Rises. I want to shout her out. I, I know that it's a coalition that was much larger than just mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Um, has been extraordinarily successful in both passing local legislation, but also pushing pension funds not to invest in private equity firms that are buying in this business. And they've actually succeeded in that in a way that I think private equity interest in the whole sort of industry has really flatlined. Um, so there is, you know, I think I think you have a really good idea here, which is there are levers that people can push on to, to sort of stop the most extractive investments. Tell me about the difference between the private equity stuff, and it seems to me at least, because I, I know people in private equity, folks. I'm not, you're not all the devil. I know a lot of people in private equity. It seems to me there's a sort of East Coast, West Coast differential here. The guys on the West Coast seem to be investing in things that are sort of prospective, it, more, more prospective in terms of markets they're going into, tech and energy and things like that. And a lot of the folks on the East Coast seem to be like on an endless shopping spree for businesses and companies that maybe a little long in the tooth or maybe a little short in the bank account. Eventually, you kind of burn through all the low-hanging targets, right? I mean, all the low-hanging fruit eventually is going to get picked. There aren't many mom and pop, you know, chains of 50 grocery stores anymore floating around out there. They really have led to this consolidation. So 
is there is there a lifespan for this business model uh, that's extractive and not prospective? Yeah, no, it's 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 a good question. And to back up a second, I mean, you talk about you know um, having private equity friends. I was talking to a private equity person this afternoon. Um, I want to make clear this is not a judgment about the people in the private equity industry. You know, right, it's right. it's it's a statement about you know it's an argument about sure. the business model and the flawed incentives of those mm-hmm, business models. Mm-hmm, so there can be mm-hmm. wonderful people in the industry, but if you've got a broke broken incentives, it's going to lead to extraction rather than investment. Right. right. And I think you're kind of hitting on the key point here, which is um, for capitalism to work, uh, for democracy to work, you need to have legal structures in place that encourage long-term investment, thinking mm-hmm. about how do we build that new factory, thinking about how do we hire these new people. And the challenge that you've got is not every private equity firm, but a lot of the ones, especially that focus on very, you know making very short-term returns, yeah. um, simply can't do that. And eventually that has a real drag on the economy because it means that people aren't able to think about building factories and hiring new people. It's about how do we get our investors their money back, you know, in a matter of months. Yeah. We're servicing so much debt uh, on the company side. Let me ask you somewhat. I I mean, so the, the, the private equity firms come in and they basically insulate themselves from any of the downside risk. And so, so that debt, if it can't be paid back, the company just gets split up, chopped up for, for, for bits and parts. Right. I mean, and then the, and the PE firms have pocketed fees every step of the way and a, and a percentage of the VIG for every, every transaction. I, again, I go back to that, like low hanging fruit thing. Like how many more companies can there be? How many, it, 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 it's just like, it seems like the easy pickings will eventually be, if you're down to doing prison phone calls, you've gotten rid of all, <laughs> you've, you bought up all the, the, like I said, the mom and pop steel mills or veterinary clinics or, or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. it seems. Well, two things. One, um, you know, I, I don't think the prison example is, a, is, is an accident. And one of the things that was really surprising for me was I think a lot of private equity firms target industries, not that cater to the rich, but ones that cater to the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is because working class people don't, ha- don't have as many options. Um, and so you can raise the price and right. they don't have a choice about going somewhere else. Um, right. Which is a little bit of a paradox, but um, for a, an industry that's trying to make money, obviously. But the second thing about, you know, how much further can this go? I mean, the example that I keep returning to, if I can tell you a quick story, sure, of course. is the private equity firm Carlisle bought up the second mm-hmm. largest nursing home chain in America, HCR Manor Care, um, right. and executed a lot of the tactics that we were talking about earlier. They sold the underlying assets. They did a dividend recapitalization. They, uh, well, I, I should clarify that they did they 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 got a lot of transaction and management fees um ultimately were able to make you know most if not all of their investment back but unsurprisingly the business suffered um you know the complaints rose um you know staffing fell ultimately people you know people started dying there um and, but when one of the family members sued alleging wrongful death mm-hmm. um carlisle's own lawyers were able to say um Look, we don't technically own Manor Care. We merely advise a series of funds <laughs> whose limited partners own Manor through Care. a series of shell companies right. ultimately own Manor Care. And that was a confusing enough argument. Um, and the law is um, sort of cloudy enough that they were able to get the case dis- against it dismissed. And mm-hmm. what I think that shows is there isn't there is a limit to how far this can go in the economy, but there's there's 
as long as private equity firms are able to avoid legal responsibility for their portfolio company's actions, um, it means that they can go a lot further. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Well, Brendan, this has been an absolute pleasure. Tell folks uh, a little bit more about when the book is coming out. I'm sure they can get it at Amazon and all fine other all other fine book retailers. So it's coming out uh, May 2nd. It's called Plunder, Private Equities Plan to Pillage America. You can buy it on Amazon or anywhere else. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much again for joining us today on the Enemies List, Brendan Ballou. You uh, have been an enlightening, uh, enlightening guest today. I hope that we can talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. Good luck on the book. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Well, today's number one guy on the enemies list is, well, Chief Justice John Roberts. It was revealed today, at the time I'm recording this on Tuesday, that on the 25th, that Neil Gorsuch, directly after he was named to the Supreme Court and nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, he sold a piece of property to the head of the Greenberg Trowig Law Firm. They have since had multiple cases in front of Gorsuch where he hasn't recused. Turns out that Harlan Crow had cases of interest that Clarence Thomas didn't recuse. And both these guys have decided they're going to play by their own ethical rules. But the person that really needs to get his shit together because he's on the enemies list is Chief Justice Roberts, who has an opportunity and a moment and a reason to do the right thing and to up the ethical standards of the Supreme Court. They took a massive, massive public hit over Thomas. They're going to take another massive hit over Gorsuch. They took a massive hit over the mysteries that still surround Kavanaugh's debt being paid off and his credit card debt being paid off. If the court loses its credibility, it will be almost impossible to regain it. If people believe it's an ethical black hole where where justices can be bought and paid for, it's going to be a, a collapse of an institution this country absolutely must not lose. And whether you are right or left, you should want the Supreme Court to be a place of the highest conceivable ethical standards. I would be saying the same thing if Sonia Sotomayor was off on George Soros's yacht. And if it's revealed that that's the case, I'll be, the, I'll be just as pissed off about it. But as of now, John Roberts has seemed to be completely uninterested in doing anything to up the ethical standards of this court. And the fires are burning, John. You should do better at this. You are the Chief Justice of the United States of America. And for right now, you're on the enemies list. Get your shit together. This has been the enemies list. And if you've been enraged or engaged or enlivened by this week's episode, let's do something about it. This podcast is part of Resolute Square, a new front in the war to preserve democracy. We were looking for a place to fight back against the MAGA media, and this is it. In addition to this podcast and many others, each week, Resolute Square members will sit down with me and other founders for an intimate meeting of the minds, talking about what's really going on behind the curtain of American politics and analyzing the minds and the motivations of the people that are shaping this country's future, good and bad along with exclusive analysis and insight from our newsletters, which are anything but conventional wisdom. And yes, we'll also have merch to make the MAGA heads in your life furious. And more. Become a partner in this fight at ResoluteSquare.com enemies. And folks, if you could like, subscribe, and rate the podcast, I would be enormously grateful. And I cannot tell you how grateful and how heartfelt your support has been for this podcast and for these conversations. And we look forward to many, many more. Thanks again. And remember, 
whatever you do, stay off the list.